the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. The maritime logistics space is not short of digital disruptors. The breathless enthusiasm of the Rolnext Silicon Valley set threatening to reinvent the analogue antiquated freight space is a familiar story, of course. Adapt or die, they cry, as the incumbents roll a weary eye and carry on with the groundswell of homegrown tech and platforms and developments that have been underway for quite some time now. That's not to say that the would-be disruptors are peddling a myth, but it's fair to say that many of those going after this opportunity have fundamentally misunderstood the sector and what it means to be a freight forwarder. Who'd have thought it? Turns out that reinventing globalised trade might require more than a shiny new website. So to be fair to our guest today, it's worth pointing out that despite the somewhat sneery responses from the industry, he has never foretold the death of freight forwarding. Far from it, in fact. He thinks freight forwarding has a bright future. He just thinks there's going to be some collateral damage along the way. There always is, of course. Quick note before we get into that and I introduce this week's edition, this is going to be the last Lloyd's List podcast for a few weeks. Uh, We're going to take a well-earned summer break. We'll be back rested and refreshed next month with the usual lineup of expert guests offering an insider's take on the story shaping shipping. In the meantime, I would welcome your input on this podcast. Let me know what you think. Uh, Any ideas you have about topics or guests you want to cover, please do get in touch. We always welcome feedback. Review us wherever you subscribe to this podcast. Find me on Twitter via at Lloyd's List Ed or on LinkedIn or just email me direct richard.mead at informer.com. For now, on with the show. Tech investment in shipping tends to generate a flurry of headlines, but news that Amazon founder Jeff Bezos was one of the largest investors in a $15 million fundraising by a freight forwarder generated interest well beyond the Lloyd's List daily briefing. Beacon, the digitally focused company set up in 2018 by former Uber executives, claimed that the funding would allow its expertise in technology to, quote, disrupt the trillion-dollar freight forwarding market by vastly improving the experience for importers and exporters with a more transparent and smarter shipping product. My guest this week is Beacon's chief executive, Fraser Robinson, a former head of business for Europe and the Middle East at Uber. Fraser, you've been quite candid about how analogue you found the existing logistics industry and how the future for traditional freight forwarders is more precarious than ever. The Beacon pitch, I guess, is that you're coming in with the promise of automating and streaming and creating efficiencies within your own operating platform. You're also, of course, applying new efficiencies to, to working capital and to trade finance. So let's start with the quick pitch from you about why you think there is an opportunity here. You know, I think when I first looked at this industry, um, you know, I saw a category of, let's call them disruptors, but I think I, I'm always cautious with the use of the word disruptor. Um you know, I think there's this category called digital freight forwarders, um, which, I, which I'm not entirely convinced is the right term anyway, because as you look across the entire logistics landscape, there are, I mean, there are just countless, you know, things that need to be done uh, within logistics. Um, and, and, you know, freight forwarding is an aspect of logistics, but, but I actually think um, when you look more holistically at what it is you're doing for your customer 
Um, and I've always rather naively viewed, in, in its simplest terms, viewed you know freight forwarding as fundamentally like travel agents for for logistics. You know, are, I know that they often go on to own assets, but fundamentally, the freight forwarder's job is to organise the movement of goods uh, for their customer and to deliver exceptional service. That those are the fundamentals. And, but I, I actually think freight forwarding uh, needs to evolve beyond just the provision of that service uh, and starts to bleed into other areas that have already existed in logistics for, for many years, um, such as prim- principally software, the provision of software, um, analytics, uh, tools that have sometimes sat in a whole other area of logistics, you know, the, the logistics software providers. So I actually think this term digital freight forwarder means a lot more than just building a website where a customer can book you know and manage the containerized shipment of their goods i think it's a a far more it's far more um along the lines of supply chain visibility um optimization using data to improve the end-to-end solution not just this narrow sliver which is the freight forwarding piece so that's why I've always been a little uncomfortable with the term digital freight forwarder, because what we aspire to do is not only provide the service that a freight forwarder provides, but a lot of the data, the supply chain visibility, uh, helping our customers understand where inefficiencies exist in their supply chain. Uh, and of course, as I've, I've made some quite public, I, I still maintain that one of the greatest problems created in the supply chain um, or by the supply chain is one of cash flow. It's one of working capital. Um, so if you can solve those that plethora of things, it's really three things: the freight forwarding, the supply chain visibility and technology, and the working capital. By bringing those three things together, I think you have something really quite powerful. But I'm not sure I'd call that a digital freight forwarder. I think it's quite a bit more than that. I mean, there's a somewhat indignant response from uh, some of the existing and more traditional players within the sector is that uh, digital disruptors are coming in with the suggestion that our sector is wholly analog and and uh, those who don't adapt will will die imminently. What you're saying is a slightly more you know subtle aspect of you coming in with fresh ideas and technology and solutions to adapt some of the areas where I think most will accept there are inefficiencies within this sector. But I mean, give us mm. an idea of uh, of your view coming in as an outsider. I mean, how analog is it? How inefficient is mm. the existing process? And, and, and where is that sort of white space that you think is available to a, apply sure. some of this new technology? Sure, absolutely. So, so I, I, I probably spent almost two years um, researching this industry, and, and I spent a fair amount of it actually uh, inside um, the operations of some tr- traditional players. So, so this this isn't my sort of um, you know a, a view from the outside. I, I actually spent quite a lot of time inside these businesses, observing how they operate and how they do their jobs. And the thing that that amazed me first and foremost was uh, how many people. Are involved in so many of these businesses um, performing fairly routine and rote tasks, um, mm. uh, filling out paperwork, um, trying to source prices from your office in Hong Kong, um, even simple things like ensuring that 
uh, all the information provided by a customer is consistent uh, across your entire network. So I just observed um, a lot of inefficiency, which led to a lot of time spent um, doing fairly rote tasks. Uh, and it, it, it looked to me incredibly expensive. And, and when, I, when I looked at some of the more high profile freight forwarders out there, uh, the, the traditional ones, the thing I always go to is this, this industry term, this accounting term, which is cost to serve. And mm. cost to serve in a freight forwarder is the cost of the people that you employ um, to do their jobs of moving the goods. And that number is usually about 50% of gross margin. Uh, it's a big number. There is no, no bigger cost line item in a freight forwarder's business, the single cost item, than cost to serve. And that's what we're attacking. And I think with technology, uh, what you can do is you can get to the point where one individual operationally can do the work of three or four people in a more traditional business. And that drives a massive change in how the P&L of a freight forwarder looks. Um, and it is simply process management, workflow management, um, and, and refining and making that a more efficient flow for the individual. And that, that's really, it's the, less, it's the less exciting stuff if you're on the outside looking in, um, because it's not something that a customer can see but it's something a customer can feel. Um, and that's why we've invested so heavily in, in the efficiencies. And, and, you know, this is what has made Amazon the company it is. It is not the technology they've built that the customer sees. It is the technology they've built that allows Amazon to do its job better. And that's, I think, where, where the real value drivers are in this industry. And that's where we've seen inefficiencies. And it's boring stuff. It's, it's, it's process. It's efficiency in workflow. But my goodness, there is a ton of inefficiency in it. Um, but it's just not shiny and exciting. But, but we, we think it is. One of, one of the more interesting aspects of, uh, of your business plan is, is your involvement in trade finance, which, again, is riddled with inefficiencies and, and is still a fairly analog process. Uh, it's yeah. certainly something that a lot of people have looked at, uh, you know, come up with valid ideas in terms of how you could uh, you know make it more efficient but this is a difficult conundrum for for global trade because it is there's no silver bullet here. there's no single point that you could uh, revolutionize or or come up with new ideas simply because of the volume of trades and the volume of fragmented uh, points at which this analog uh, process is is happening, but you're very much involved in in the logistics aspect of trade finance. Give us a view of of how you think that aspect is is ripe for some digital disruption and and how you, yeah. think you can actually enter it. Yeah. So so to help to help frame it, um, I actually think of this part of our business as a as a fintech in many ways. Mm. It's a it's a that that's how we we approach it. And when you look at fintech startups as a whole you know banking startups whether they're b2c or b2b um, most of the time fintech is about improving the customer journey making it simpler to access capital and not unlike what we're building on the operations side of the freight business um, creating operating efficiencies um, within within you know what is a highly process oriented uh, workflow. So, I mean, so that's how we think about 
where we can bring improvements. Um, and when you look at how the larger banks have approached, traditionally approached things like trade finance, um, for example, you know, they've, um, they do remain fairly analog, uh, you know, teams of individuals assessing applications, um, going and, and pouring through uh, P&Ls, historical balance sheets, receivables and all the rest of it. There, there are um, a huge number of items uh, that can be automated and can mm. be streamlined. And, and, and what the banks have struggled to do, and this is where fintech has stepped in, what banks have usually struggled to do with all sorts of products, by the way, it's mortgages, trade finance, whatever you like, um, they've always struggled to scale down their businesses, meaning offer their services and products to smaller companies and smaller customers, because it just becomes economically inefficient for them to do that. They, they would rather take the effort to write a $10 million check, same effort to write a $10 million check as, as, it, as it is to write a $500,000 check. Mm. Um, but, but when you have a very manual or less automated process of doing that, um, it just doesn't make sense economically for them to service smaller customers. So where fintechs, and this is exactly applies to what we're doing in trade finance, um, you know, streamlines, is it just makes capital available to smaller companies um, because we can do so more efficiently by automating a lot of the process involved in receiving applications, credit assessing customers and deploying capital. Mm. Um, so that's, 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 where, uh, that's where it gets interesting. Um, and I think that this is the FinTech story. I, I'm not saying we will have a cheaper cost of capital, in fact, we'll be competitive, but you know, market rates on what we're charging but I think we can make a big dent in how the customers interact and, and the, the ease with which they can access capital uh, and manage their capital. Uh, and that's worth a lot. Worth a lot. I mean, what, give us an idea of the sort of the, the scale of opportunity. I mean, we're talking, uh, you know, in the wake of you closing a $15 million Series A funding round, which is impressive, certainly. Um, but, you know, uh, a mere splash in the ocean compared to uh, some of the money that is involved in some of the larger uh, competitors that you're coming up against. And, uh, you know, there are, as I say, many other people in this space. This is an area that is going to require a huge investment. The fact that you have got such a uh, high profile series of investors coming in from uh, digitally native startups that have made good uh, certainly is, I guess, uh, an indicator that there is real interest in this area. But do you think it is going to be uh, easy enough for you to, to continue raising that money to expand in this way? Yeah, so it's a, it's a very good question. Um, and it's an important one to be clear about. Um, the way we think about um, capital um, for trade finance is, you know, sort of think of it, imagine as you know, like, like being a bank, really. Um, the money that we've raised uh, for, for Beacon uh, is not money we are lending out. That is money to build the business, um, hire the team, continue to build the technology and all the rest of it and do, do our jobs. Um, the way we're approaching trade finance is as a separate independent pool of capital that will be invested in um, by credit investors seeking a different type of return entirely. Um, so I want to be clear that the money we've raised is, doesn't really have any bearing 
on how much we could finance for our customers because that sits elsewhere in a completely separate pool of capital uh, mm. for which for which we're um, already um, raising capital at the moment. It's it's a different type of money and it's more sort of banking funds or alternative investment type capital. So they're very separate and distinct things, and we'll never uh, we'll never you know scale our our trade finance platform off of the equity invested in Beacon. That's not the plan at all. Understood, understood. But uh, let's, I mean, talk about the, you know, the high profile investors that you do have. Um, you made a you know, splash in terms of headlines with the fact that Jeff Bezos investment uh, was was part of that uh, Series A funding round. And as I said at the outset, you have some fairly high profile backers existing already. Do you think that helps when it comes to selling what is, you know, in your own words, quite a, a boring story in some respects? You, mm. you know, it is a complicated and and, and quite, uh, you know, detailed pitch that otherwise might go amiss from those looking for the more uh, sexy end of uh, digital disruption, I guess. Yeah, it's it's um it's interesting because I so when I when I set out to to look for you know the next opportunity uh, following Uber. Um, I mean, you tend to get a couple of different types of, of, of individuals when they're looking to do this stuff. You, you get those who are looking for uh, much more visible, um, you know, swing for the fence type entrepreneurs who who want that steep growth, very visible. It's usually in B2C type businesses. Uber's a good example of such. Um, but I, I tend to favor uh, very, very large at scale more traditional industries that that are less glossy quite frankly mm. because I, I think that tends to be where there's more opportunity and and quite frankly a lot of my investors feel exactly the same way um, they're not looking for that super high risk b2c you know how many consumers can you get to download your app type business because they tend to be much much riskier um, more interesting I think to focus on larger you know, as I say less glossy industries um, where there's un- undoubtedly opportunity um, if you if you look carefully enough. So, so I, I I don't think the lack of glossiness has been a problem at all. I think most investors are looking not for gloss but for returns, um, and and that's that's I think what's helped us to get the traction we have. It's it's logistics is very large, and I I would challenge anyone in the world uh, to tell me. Uh, that logistics is at its end state uh, and beyond improvement. Uh, I think everything uh, still has room for for improvement. So I, I think that's what attracted those sorts of investors. Um, glossiness is not the name of the game. Returns are. Wonderful. Uh, Fraser Robinson, Chief Executive of Beacon, thank you very much for joining the Lloyd's List podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.